Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and we're continuing our series from last week on the political situation in the United States of America. As probably everyone knows, we have an election coming up, and beyond the presidential choices, there are quite a few issues at play up and down the ballot, depending on where you're at. And it really does seem like it's a pivotal moment in our nation's history. And for folks who um, live outside the United States, it does seem like the issues that are at play here have echoes around the globe. I'm joined by two outstanding scholars. Um, I'd like to introduce... Dr. Vanessa Corradera, Chair of the English Department at Andrews University. Welcome, Dr. Corradera. My pleasure. And I would like to also introduce Dr. Courtney Ray, who is the president of the Society for Black Neuropsychology and also an ordained minister in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Welcome, Dr. Ray. You're welcome. So we have an election coming up. So I think the first thing I'd really like to hear from both of you is what's kind of keeping you up at night or what sort of issues jump out at you when you're uh, paying attention to the news? What is really, you know, of concern to you as a, as a citizen and as an Adventist? Well, one of the things I can tell you that keeps me up at night is um, as a citizen, just some of the blatant disregard for human rights inequality that I see not just in the local level, because, you know, we have seen a lot of um, brutality and injustice in our policing system and our judicial system, but even in the higher echelons of government, just, you know, lots of different things in inequality in terms of gender inequality inequality for different people from different uh, backgrounds, sexuality, immigration, all those kinds of things. And what keeps me up as an Adventist is the fact that many of our Adventist brothers and sisters kind of don't care (laughs) or they are willing to overlook it for whatever single issue that they may have. I would agree. I'll just begin by saying that all views here are my own and they don't represent where I work. Uh, (laughs) And I just a little caveat. Um, And I would agree. So for me, you, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I think about the way that we are systematizing and striving to legalize or not. We, but part of society is trying to systematize and legalize human inequality. Um, when I feel like we should be going the other way, we we should be systematizing and legalizing equality. And there seems to be such a trenchant resistance to that. Um, and I, I can't, you know, as someone in the humanities, I can't believe that we 
can look at a not so distant history and see how over and over again, that is just so incredibly harmful to not only human beings, to democracy, to um, social well-being, uh, to citizenship. Um, so what you said about gender, about uh, about immigration, about racial injustice, about um, LGBTQ plus rights, all those issues, just it, I can't even pinpoint one. So when Alex, you ask what keeps you up at night, many things keep me <laughs> up at night. Um, and I would agree as well. So um, that it, it concerns me that Adventists don't seem more upset about the treatment of other individuals. And, and in fact, that so many people that I see are embracing this sort of um, union of church and state when traditionally we have been a church that is more on the end of social justice, even if we've gotten it wrong plenty of times, um, and definitely on uh, the kind of farther end of keeping a separation of church and state. But I feel like people want, are, like the Christians are looking for some sort of Christian nation, um, and I think that that is a dangerous and slippery slope. Yeah, I'm glad that you're bringing up these um, issues, and it is shocking to me that Adventists aren't more um, attuned to the way that uh, inequality is structured into our society, in part because we spend so much time thinking about um, power as it relates to, say, the state or the Catholic Church or Sunday keepers. Uh, we're all familiar with that language, and yet um, we're really silent about the the other inequality that's around, at least the kind of majoritarian white church. Um, as we're looking towards um, this election, I'd love for you to both maybe draw upon your disciplinary interests, the folks that you socialize with, and, and just give us a perspective on um, what you're you know, seeing or hearing as your um, kind of um, trying to, to pierce through the news coverage and, um, and try to uh, think about what is going to be the shape of, of this country um, in, in the next four years. Well, just talking from a disciplinary standpoint, as you mentioned, I have kind of two disciplines. So there's ministry and also um, psychology. From a psychological standpoint, um, I'm really concerned about people's mental health and well-being. Just um, the re-traumatization of marginalized communities and just the fatigue that I see and the psychological burdens that a lot of people are really subjected to day by day when they are continually, you know, in fear that their rights are going to be taken away in some way where they're going to continually be marginalized by the institution of the government. And I, I heard this quote before that says, um, privilege is when you've never had to have a court decide about your basic rights, <laughs> you know, wow. and that just really is a privilege that many people have and don't even recognize that, you know, there are lots of people 
whose basic fundamental right to exist and do the things that other people do is a matter of a legal battle of some kind or a political playing chip, you know? And just the fact that people are continually dealing with the prospect of maybe I might not have the same rights that I have right now in, you know, another year. And that's a very scary thing. And it definitely affects people just not only psychologically, but also it trickles down into their physical health. And we see just the breakdown and the burden that that has on them. And on the flip side, when I'm talking about the ministry piece, um, you know, Vanessa talked so well about the whole idea of separation in church and state being something that Adventists have always promoted. We have always been at the forefront of religious liberty. And I fear that we have done a lot of, um, you know, being upset about like you said, the Roman Catholic Church <laughs> and all these and the Sunday laws and all these things that affect us, but we've kind of forgotten the bigger picture of what religious liberty means. Religious liberty is not just liberty for my own self-interest and what I believe, but it's the idea that we have room for everyone and the state should not be legislating um, religious beliefs for anybody. And I'm afraid that that breakdown of, you know, that interest of our own, you know, superseding everyone else's interest definitely gets in the way of our message and our evangelism. And I think it also creates rifts inside of our church as different people, you know, square up on different sides of these kinds of issues. Yeah, Courtney, I don't know if you have a church or what your ministry is, but I want to visit sometime. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, you know, I see those rifts and, and I think that those rifts speak to one of the disciplinary concerns. Well, actually, both of the disciplinary concerns I have. Um, and I know it's like, well, what does literature have to do with um, the election? Well, I, I mean, not necessarily literature, but part of what we do in English, uh, we talk a lot about perspective. Um, and being able to, because especially in fiction, what you're asked to do is take on someone else's perspective for X amount of time, however amount of time you're committing to the text. Um, and it is really amazing to me uh, how people cannot or refuse to, maybe it's not even cannot, they choose not to take someone else's perspective. Um, mm -hmm. They choose to just be entrenched in their own. And even when presented with, facts, when presented with emotional stories, when presented with a wide range of different ways of appealing to the mind and heart, um, it feels like we're in a time and an era where that entrenchment is so deep that it's really hard to have dialogue and growth because people don't want to let go of their perspectives. Like I, I have been in Sabbath school classes where people are making comments about um, it's okay to have immigrant children in cages because their parents came over here and broke the law. And I've had to say, are you a wow. parent? Like, I mean, as a parent, what would you do for your child? I have a six-year-old son. I would do anything for my child. 
So if I were to put my child in danger, it's because I truly felt I had no other choice. That's, that's it. Cause there's no way that I'm putting him in danger on purpose. And, right. and that people can't for one moment move out of whatever perspective they're getting from the news or from their family members or from whatever and think about someone else is something that I found really challenging. Um, especially as Christians, when we are asked to, right, to think about other people, to do unto others as we would like to be done to ourselves, um, uh, to, to be that good Samaritan, right, to think about other people. Um, that is just uh, shocking to me. Um, and, I, and I feel like you said it compromises our message. Yes. When we can't look at someone else's perspective, it compromises our message because how do we even know how to share the good news to the world if we can't see what the world is needing? Um, and, and I think the other thing that I find really challenging from a, a disciplinary perspective uh, is the question of the logicality of an argument. Um, so I have friends and colleagues, say, in Sabbath school who are really willing to kind of go staunchly and support the right to life. But I'm like, why does the right to life end with a fetus? Why is this right to life not extended to mothers needing help? Why right. is this not extended to children in cages? Why is this not right to life not extended to every single human being that we ostensibly believe has been created in the image of God? Um, and why does the right to life end when that being comes out of the womb? And why does the life, right to life not extend to a mother? And we know the answers to some of these questions, power, gender dynamics, racial dynamics, prejudice. Um, but as Christians, we're called to do better. And that's where I wonder why people can't look at us as Christians and us at Adventists, as Adventists and see better. Why are they seeing the same toxic messages? Um, that they're seeing elsewhere. So great that we are vegan and great that we don't wear jewelry. But really, is that the example we're setting? That it seems not far enough. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And, and the whole idea of empathy, I mean, if we're talking about being Christians and emulating the, the example of Christ, Christ became flesh to dwell among us. You know, the whole incarnation of, is about Christ, God, becoming human in order to be with us and among us. And that whole idea of relational incarnational ministry and we ourselves have such a different difficult time, just like you said, adopting someone else's perspective. And they're right next to us. You know, I had a um, conversation with some of my ministerial colleagues just earlier this week about um, just how you were saying um, people who don't want to extend the right to life to everyone beyond just in the womb. And even as we talked about third trimester abortions, I don't know if you had seen um, this interview between um, Chris Wallace and Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. And was, yeah. And, yeah. And so, and Mayor Pete was just kind of like, you know, when we're talking about their trimester abortions, we're talking about people who want their kid. They've picked out a crib. They have picked out a name, probably. Like, this is a wanted child who, for whatever reason, these women are in this horrible situation where they have to, you know, choose. And 
this has been made into this huge talking point. And so even that, you know, I'm, I'm not even trying to, to try to gain empathy with my colleagues for people who are having earlier um, abortions. I'm, I'm just the bare minimum. Like <laughs> this is a, <laughs> this is a mother who is either dying or their child is not viable. And still, even with the thing that I would think would be baseline humanity and empathy, there were people who were just like, no, not at all. Murder is awful. And even one of our colleagues who is also in ministry had like a, a very traumatic experience um, that he had shared about his own it, it, you know, experience with this. He and his wife actually had a pregnancy that wound up they knew that it wasn't going to be viable, but they did not um, choose to have an abortion. But after the birth, the, the child suffered for a very brief period of time, less than a day, and, you know, died. And, and he shared how heartbreaking that was to see and to know that he caused his child pain. And it was just kind of like, you know, had he known n- had he known then what he knows now, he and his wife would not make that same decision to carry that baby until delivery. Like that, you know, was horrible and weighs heavily on their heart. And even with that story, there were still people who had the audacity to use words like murderer and just, just I mean, just the total opposite of the type of compassion and care that you desire from Christians. And we're not talking about just people in the pews. We're talking about pastors. We're talking about leaders, people who should be at the forefront of showing and telling people like, you know, this is how we should act. And, you know, so, I mean, if, if there are people who are like that with a story like that from a colleague of theirs in a situation that is so, um, heart-wrenching for themselves and that's still the reaction I hold out very little hope for any sort of compassion when it's somebody that they don't know someone in the community someone who um, is getting an abortion that's early than their, the third trimester someone who is in other situations that make that seem like this is what their choices are you know I, I have absolutely no hope unfortunately, that people will change their mind unless the one thing that I think does wind up changing people's minds is their own personal experience. Because when it hits home with them, and I definitely do not wish that on anyone, anyone. But I feel like the only time when people um, often become moved from their very entrenched position is when it affects them. And now it's not a hypothetical and it's not a story, but now it's their own lived experience. And all of a sudden, all of the objectives that they had, you know, well, there's an exception to this, you know, well, it's not exactly the same thing, you know, because that, re- that hypothetical has now become reality. And a friend of mine who actually worked at um, an abortion clinic was telling me how there would be women who she knew who were very 
pro, you know, they you know, pro-life, very uh, vehement in their stance. And they would come in for an abortion. <laughs> and because there was a meme that someone had written about this on Twitter saying, like, there would be women who would come in and be upset and, and cussing them out <laughs> as they're, you know, getting ready for their own procedure. Because they themselves, even though they were in a situation where they were choosing to have an abortion, they weren't like those other people. And the people who were the practitioners helping them were, in their mind, people who were, um, you know, enabling this horrible, horrible thing while they are getting this procedure. And so I had this conversation with my friend where she was like, yeah, this is 100% absolutely true. This has happened when she she saw this with her own eyes in the clinic that she worked at. And it's just amazing to me, um, just the cognitive dissonance yeah. that people have, you know, and that's really what, what it boils down to. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up that point about um, it really not affecting folks um, until it affects them personally. I've seen quite a few examples of that. And um, I would like both of you to kind of maybe reflect on that idea and and the and empathy. How um, because both of you uh, dedicate your um, considerable talents to helping humanity through education and ministry and psychology um, and attending church, uh, uh, which is its own um, act of grace and. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> um, where did, if you don't mind just speaking personally, was there, can you just reflect back, um, either personally about where your own sense of empathy, you know, expanded in, in a significant way, um, or, or ways that you've seen it expand in a person. Um, I'm feeling a little hopeless right now thinking about, uh, the way that our, our egos, uh, really drive our sense of right and wrong. And I'd just like to hear from you where you kind of developed a politics that includes, uh, more than just self-interest. Um, I'm happy to, to speak to that. I posted about this on my Facebook post a while ago. Um, and I've barely ever posted on Facebook or anywhere, really. Um, you know, I care really deeply about social justice, but that wasn't always the case um, because I grew up with all sorts of privilege. So I'm Cuban-American, and so you would think that maybe that would mean that I'm a little bit more in tune to like, questions of racial or ethnic inequity and like maybe kind of, but I was really insulated because um, we are white Cuban Americans, uh, and I grew up for most of my childhood thoroughly middle class, and those in a small town in Central Florida, and so those were really insulating. Um, just a really that was a really insulating environment, and my parents, I think, intentionally tried to keep me insulated and protected, as you know, Adventist parents can do. Um, and you know, I left for high school, and I went to Forest Lake Academy. And I had been at a diverse junior academy where there were a lot of white and some Hispanic and lots of Asian students. But for the first time, I went to an academy that was even more diverse than that and where um, racial prejudice was not hidden. It was just out front and center. Like someone I remember got wanted to 
uh, wear a Confederate flag on one of our graduation walks because somebody else had wanted to wear a kente cloth, right? So just out at blatant. Yeah. Um, and I say this because I remember that that was kind of the beginning of a social justice education that I, A, didn't know I needed, and B, that I'm really grateful for because it was a lot of labor on other people's parts that I didn't even know to thank them for at the time. Um, and now I do. And sometimes it was just people talking in front of, not to me or at me, but in front of me about really difficult topics. Um, sometimes it was people sharing really challenging um, situations that they had, had been in. And even then, I remember thinking things that embarrassed me now. Like, like it's just really, really embarrassing things. So I'll share one, and, like, it just is mortifying. It just mortifies me to think of it. But, like, oh, well, why do we have to have Black History Month or Hispanic History Month or whatever? Um, why, why do we have to have that? Well, I wasn't thinking meta about the fact that every other month is just History Month, which is White History Month, because white people have controlled education and what we get as facts and archives for so long. That I didn't know that because my history teachers weren't having that conversation. And that's total privilege because I bet you there were other people who didn't look like me and didn't have my background who knew that at a much earlier age than I knew that. Um, and so I, I can only say to Courtney's point that it was my interactions with other people. Um, I think the Holy Spirit uh, is part of that too, because there had to have been some openness there that I can't even take credit for because it wasn't like I was like, now I'm going to learn about social justice. Like now I'm going to sit down and read this book. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that my ideas and my heart were transformed. And I wouldn't say like, oh, I was such a racist person before, but I was an incredibly ignorant and prejudiced person before. And we're all ignorant and prejudiced people. But now I know that I need to check my ignorance and prejudice and that I experienced less pre less prejudice in other people. Um, and I need to be cognizant of that. And then I need to be willing to give up my power and my privilege to advocate for those people. And, and it's about really being humble. Um, and there's a lot of work I know that I still need to do because I think that there's a lot of um, racial inequity embedded, some, and we don't even realize it, embedded in how we are taught and in certain Christian messages. Um, there's absolutely prejudice against um, anyone who is not heterosexual. Um, and I learned all those things, sometimes at the foot of my Sabbath school or my pastor. And so it is a constant prayerful attitude of trying to ask Christ to allow me to manifest Christian love and empathy in my life. Um, and it is work. And it is work that you just have to commit to. And it is really painful because you have to check yourself all the time. And then you have to say you're sorry when you mess up. Like, it's not enough to just be like, oh, I'll fix it next time. And then to do better. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that that's like the most inspiring story. <laughs> uh, but I, I just want to say that, that it takes time and work. And all we can do is ask for grace from every single person that we're going to encounter and not get it right. Because we won't get it right 100% of the time. And then, and then we continue to be better because it's really easy to feel like, fine, I give up. Like, I didn't get it perfect, so I'm not going to do it at all. And I think that we just have to be better than that. 100%. I, I, think, <clears throat> I think exactly the part where you said that, you know, we are all ignorant of something, you know. I, and Alex, you and I have had this conversation on, on, on was it, is it the same podcast? Yeah. <laughs> about, about, you know, the fact that 
everyone has blind spots and everyone has something that they were unaware of before and all has, we all have them to grow. And um, just a personal experience of mine, um, you know, I grew up in New York City and we're a very diverse city. And obviously there's lots of people who are here who are um, immigrants from other countries. And even in my church that I grew up in, we had a lot of people who immigrated here. But a lot of those people had green cards, or at least when they talked about their immigration story, it was, you know, I how I got this green card and how I came here or I came on a visa or something like that. And I remember, you know, not necessarily being prejudiced towards people who were immigrants, but more so like having the, the thought like, um, if these people that I know could come to the United States, quote unquote, the right way, you know, and they didn't get to the front of the line, then everybody should just go the right way, quote unquote, and they should not try to get in the front and not try to cut the line and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And yeah, if you're, if you're here and you got here the wrong way, then you, you shouldn't be rewarded for that, that kind of a thing. And, um, I remember when I was teaching, um, when I was teaching at one of our academies, I was a chaplain and a, and a religion teacher. I was teaching my senior, um, my senior religion class, and some of the kids there were talking about, you know, what are they going to do after graduation and all this other kind of stuff. And I had a really smart student who just didn't say anything, and I was like, and, and I'm like, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to college? What are you going to do? And, you know, he's like, oh, probably not. And, you know, I took some side later on and I'm like, well, you know, what, what's going on? Why wouldn't you want to continue your education? And, and he was just kind of like, because I don't, I can't. And this was actually before, this is before uh, Obama was president. This is before DACA, before all of that. And he was, had been, um, he had been brought here as a child. And he didn't have, you know, documentation. And so he was just like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to go to college. And, you know, I'm going to probably wind up just working. <laughs> and I'm just like, how? How is this a thing? And it wasn't until I had that personal experience with someone that I connected to that I was just like, huh, you know, this person is a person who I think is a great person and his family is a good family. So what's going on here? And that's when I actually took the time to educate myself about what really are the obstacles and what really is the process and how cumbersome it is and, you know, how unfair in many cases it is and how long people actually wait and how many hoops that we um, make people jump through, even people who are seeking asylum, which is legal for people to do. And it just boggled my mind and it just transformed my entire thought process around, you know, the whole immigration process. And I think it's very easy for any of us to get caught up in what we think a process is or what we think um, a certain group of people are like or what we believe um, about a certain topic that we have heard a lot about 
But unless we really have an incentive to take the time to investigate and to study it for ourselves, we're only hearing half the story. We're only hearing part of whatever it is that we think we know. And more than likely, we're going to only consume that information that only reinforces our beliefs. And for me, that belief was people who want to immigrate here have a process. They can go through the process. Why don't people go through the process? And the idea that, oh, wait, maybe there's something else that I don't know about this never even occurred to me, you know, until I had this confrontation with someone in my real life. And I think that that happens all the time. And that is probably one of the key reasons why people don't really have that change of heart or even a willingness to change their mind um, until it happens to them because they really don't have any, any reason nor incentive to just go and make this, uh, you know, investigation themselves. And so now it's, so it's the opposite. Now I volunteer for um, Physicians for Human Rights, and I do pro bono work for people who are refugees and asylum seekers who need to be able to um, pass psychological evaluations, and I, and, or at least have psychological evaluations. It's not a pass or fail, but they need to have an uh, evaluation conducted. And so I am able to help those people to get those evaluations because there's a backlog of people like years long. There are some people that I see who have been waiting for an immigration trial for like a decade or more. And it's crazy to me, but there's just not enough people to help them move through the system efficiently. And our system is, it's pretty jacked up. So that whole concept of, wow, we need to really understand all perspectives probably isn't something that most of us actively seek out unless we need to or unless we have to because we're, we're we are left with no other choice. Yeah. Um, thank you to both of you for being so open and honest about your own journeys there and, and sharing, um, some really poignant anecdotes. Um, I am worried, though, that our uh, that folks don't get enough opportunities to really get their perspective changed. And so kind of wrapping up, my last question is, what gives you hope in a world right now where um, people aren't interacting enough and listening enough to each other? Um, the election is coming soon. It's not going to change everything. Maybe it will change a few things for the better. Um, but uh, whatever happens, um, I think I need hope. So how can you uh, give us some hope? Well, I would say that my students give me hope. And that sounds super cheesy and corny, but it's just true. They are amazing human beings and they... Um, dialogue with each other and with their parents and I think they give me hope for a, a future and for for whatever generations before us haven't completed whatever my generation isn't getting done um, theirs is coming uh, and I find that really hopeful and then I also think you know I've mentioned my Sabbath school several times but it gives me hope it's intergenerational it's intercultural 
Um, and we have people on the quote unquote more liberal spectrum and then quote unquote more conservative. And we meet every week and talk and have difficult conversations. And it's not easy. And sometimes people get mad. And yet we are there and we treat each other with grace and kindness. Um, and I think that bravery for us to say what we need to say and to speak truth to each other and to challenge each other is really important because both, and I hate these binary terms, but both left and right, both conservatives and liberals, whether we're talking about conservative Adventists or liberal Adventists or whether we're talking conservative and liberal when it comes to politics, tend to just silo themselves off because it is really painful uh, to be exposed to things that challenge you and hurt you. Um, and, and sometimes things are a challenge. Sometimes things are just wrong. Um, but nevertheless, we have to be able to be brave enough to dialogue um, because if not, you just end up talking to an echo chamber. And I've seen a lot of growth and change um, in my Sabbath school, and um, I think that gives me hope. I let out a little yay when you said <laughs> your students give you hope because I really do echo the same thing. Um, shameless plug for the Society for Black Neuropsychology. We, we do a lot of events geared towards undergrad students and grad students and trying to help um, just our next generation be successful in, um, in the field of psychology and neuropsychology in particular, but just in education in general. And uh, we're open to people from all backgrounds. And one of the things that it's really cool, we just had an event earlier this week, and so many people from so many different backgrounds, so many undergrad students were a part of that. And it was really beautiful to see just how many young people are committed to making our world a better place. Again, like you said, that's, it sounds so cheesy, <laughs> but I mean, it is the truth. That's exactly what, what it is. It's the idea that we have this future generation that really is um, trying to see a perspective that maybe uh, previous generations were unwilling to see or um, unable to see because of the way that they grew up or not having the opportunity or being isolated because our world is becoming more global. And just the fact is we're going to be interacting with more people more and more, even though many of us are still in isolation <laughs> from COVID. Um, we still have this, this society where we rub shoulders with each other and it becomes so much harder to just, stay in your neat little bubble for, I mean, you still can, there's still places, <laughs> there's still pockets where you can just be insulated, but more and more, our just society is so much a uh, melting pot, well, not even a melting pot, a salad bowl, where you have so many different people um, just coming together and those experiences, um, especially for our young people, help to shape their minds and shape them in a way where they're just a lot more open to um, being people who advocate for equality for other people and really are not afraid to speak out when something is not okay. And I am so enthusiastic, and that is what gives me the most hope out of all of it. Well, it's been um, encouraging to uh, talk with both of you and 
I really learned a lot from your perspectives and you have given me hope. Thank you so much for um, being willing to lead in our Adventist community and to think out loud um, in the many ways that you do. So uh, thanks so much for having this conversation. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget.